Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to another episode of History for the Curious. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. I've missed you. Oh, well, what can I say? We're here now. Our listeners have. They've been messaging us, telling us how excited they are for after the break. This is going to be the third episode of Prague, History of Prague, and this is called The Exile in 1745. Rabbi Hirsch. So the subject is Prague, but actually it's worth remembering that six Central European capitals had significant Jewish interest and history. Three of them are relevant only from the 1800s onwards, Warsaw, Preshburg, and Budapest, which is why if you take a tour of Budapest, really, unless you go to Buda on the other side of the Danube, the presence of Jewish life in Pest is really from the late 1800s onwards. But three cities were already the subject of legislation in the 1700s, and they are Berlin, Vienna, and Prague, and in similar ways. During this century, the Jews of these three cities were hit with two very different issues, and the century is in fact divided into two almost equal halves as a result. These two are the carrot and the stick, both of which were devastating, but in very different ways. And much of the first 50 years sees these three cities going through a period in which Jews would be treated pretty much as they had been in the Middle Ages, although I guess they're still better off than uh, Warsaw or Budapest, where no Jews were allowed at the time at all. Now, this would obviously be the stick element, and one of the main reasons would be the incessant warfare and moving territories and front lines. By way of example, the Habsburg monarchy, where initially the bulk of its possessions were in Austria and Bohemia Moravia, and its population was probably uh, three million or so, it would emerge as a major European power. In the east, the emperor conquered large parts of Hungary, that had been occupied by the Ottomans for over a century. In the west, there were the Netherlands. In the south, large parts of the Italian peninsula. And finally, this is a little later, in the first Polish partition in 1772, they had Galicia. And therefore, as a result, by 1775, the empire had... 23 million inhabitants. So So it wasn't directly anti-Semitism that you defined as the stick. This was just changes in the country. Well, as we're going to see, those changes necessitated different policies for the Jews, at least in the eyes of the Habsburg rulers and the Prussians, as we will soon see. Now, in Berlin, for instance, in 1750, Frederick the Great of Prussia issued a charter to the Jews. It was 
you could call filled with contempt for the Jew and is a decided change for the worse when you compare it to the edict of 1671 and it would be in force until 1850. You know, the hypocrisy and anti-Semitism drips off every line. To give you an example, he wrote in this charter, because of the surreptitious entry of unlicensed Jews, many complaints and difficulties have arisen. However, out of a feeling of most gracious paternal provision, we wish to maintain the livelihood and trades of every loyal subject under our protection, Christians as well as Jews. We have considered certain feasible proposals which have as their basis justice, fairness and safety. But when you look at it in detail, so you have, for instance, a list of tolerated communal Jews in Berlin, the officials, one rabbi, four town criers, one of whom had to report daily to the police if there was an arrival of any foreign Jew, two doorkeepers at the city gates who had to examine the papers of any arriving Jew, one physician, a couple of Hebrew printers, and the numbers of permitted Jewish resident families who were given a temporary stay in Berlin were allowed to settle only one child during their lifetime. In other words, they could only give over that residency to one member of their family. And once that decision was made, they couldn't change it. If the child left or passed away, that could not be changed. And they were not allowed to pursue any manual trade whatsoever. And he goes on to write, Various Jews here have ventured in an arbitrary manner to hold assemblies and private prayer meetings in their houses. This, however, runs counter to our previous decrees and public welfare, and as such is very objectionable. They will refrain under penalty of death and complete expulsion of the Jewry of Berlin from abuses such as the Jewish prayer which begins Olenu. So, you get the idea. You know, their numbers are limited, their trades are extremely limited, their rights are extremely limited, and you needed a certain amount of money to enter in the first place. Yet, against all the odds in the few trades open to them, the small amount of tolerated Jews will prosper. So Hitler wasn't the first in Germany to shout anti-Semitism? Oh, absolutely not. No, definitely not. How are things in Vienna at this time? So... Things are pretty similar in Vienna, despite having a different ruler who was actually at war with the Prussians, because most of the Habsburg provinces had the privilege, quote unquote, of not tolerating Jews at all within their borders, including all of Austria after the expulsion of Jews in 1670. Vienna was a necessary exception, but there were perhaps... 200 Jews there in total. They were needed. The royal court of the Habsburgs required capital, and these Jews were wealthier, better educated, and more assimilated than their co-religionists, although that might be the wrong word to use because intermarriage, for instance, doesn't really exist but they were assimilated in the sense that they want the approval of their Gentile neighbours 
much more so than their orthodox co-religionists in the East. And as a result, the state felt the need to enforce distinguishing signs. To give you an example, married men, Jewish men in Vienna, were required to have a beard. And if they're caught without a beard, the punishment was either prison or bodily punishment. And the second occasion would mean expulsion from Vienna. And this way people would look Jewish and be less likely to get that invitation to come around for dinner. Then there were, of course, the bachelors, the unmarried, because in Central Europe, bachelors didn't grow beards. So how can they be readily identified as Jewish? So they had to wear yellow armbands, just like in the Middle Ages and just like in Vienna after 1938. I guess it's a case of practice makes perfect. How about the women? So there they were less worried because the roles of women were much more prescribed and therefore their involvement in daily life was much more limited. However, this would affect men and women alike. Viennese Jews were banned from all theatres, inns, coffee houses, and they were not allowed outdoors on the streets at all on Christian feast days. There was one small group of Jews in Vienna who were exempt from all of these restrictions, which might come as a surprise to most listeners, and those were the Svaradim, who were recognised as Ottoman, as Turkish subjects, under the terms of the Treaty of Peserovitz. And if you've ever taken a tour of Vienna, you will no doubt be aware that there was a very large and impressive Turkish shul there in the second district, which was destroyed along with 11 other main synagogues on Kristallnacht. But meanwhile, in the 1700s, the Ashkenazi Jews, who unlike the Svardim, were not allowed to have a synagogue, had to conduct their prayer services in a whisper, so as not to disturb or uh, give affront to their Christian neighbours across the street. And they weren't allowed to own real estate, to buy any property, until the 1840s. More than that, there were repeated schemes to force the Jews back into the ghettos. Now, various areas were proposed, and it wasn't mercy that prevented it from happening, simply that the Christian inhabitants of those districts didn't want it. But finally, in 1772, it was decided that if the Jews can't be concentrated in one area, at least they ought not to be allowed to live wherever they pleased. And some two dozen housing blocks scattered throughout the city were designated as Jewish residences. And the owners were compensated for whatever loss in prestige they had by having Jewish tenants. So in exchange, they were allowed to raise the rent by a third over what they had been charging until this time. Why were Jews remaining there with such anti-Semitism, so blatant? The truth is, I guess we're going to have to do a series on uh, Jewish rights in Europe. But as, for instance, I mentioned in passing earlier, Warsaw had no Jews. Budapest had no Jews. The options were quite limited. Where's that to go? Yeah. So you took what you could get. And once you were there, you were able to live your own life, bearing in mind um, that 
life revolved far more around the home than perhaps it does today. So you coped, and in certain measures, you were more privileged than other Jews down the road a couple of hundred miles away. Mm. Now, in Vienna, Maria Theresa was extremely anxious to have as many factories as possible established in her empire to minimize Austria's dependence on foreign imports. Now, the rich Jews, these tolerated Jews, were in a position to finance them, and the empress was aware of that. But she insisted that any Jew establishing a factory should first deposit half of his fortune in escrow with the Stadtbank, so as to guarantee that if the enterprise went bankrupt because of, you know, Jewish crooked manipulations, that no Christian would suffer a loss. And unsurprisingly, there were no takers for this. Did the Jews ever manage to get around these laws? So at certain times, during the wars, for instance, when the authorities had other concerns other than regulating the lives of the Jews, at that stage, the number of Jewish immigrants from other parts of the monarchy would rise. There would be reason to come to Vienna temporarily, and it would then just eventually be overlooked for those few. So, for instance, you could come to visit a physician, and people undertook treatments that would take years. Others declared their intention of studying at university, which at least under the law, they were allowed to do, and they never registered for a single course. Some of them had themselves entered as servants of rich Jewish households without ever doing any work in that capacity. The really clever ones declared that they intended to convert to Catholicism and that they needed to be in Vienna to receive instruction because the village priests of Galicia or Moravia were too ignorant to, you know, be able to initiate them. I'm just curious, halachically, if that's allowed. Well, it was not an intention to declare Christianity as a superior religion. It never got to that stage. Even to put on the form of entry? Yes, Interesting. Uh, I guess. If they would have written that, then it probably would have been questionable. Right. Yeah. Now, in principle, all Jews who didn't receive a residence permit for um, any of the above-named reasons were allowed to be in Vienna for no more than two days, for 48 hours. The document could be renewed, but not more than twice. So you had a six-day maximum stay in Vienna. However, there were ways around it, and that was to enter the town through one gate, and you'd get your approval and your permit there. You'd cross the city, and you'd re-enter through a different gate. So you'd start out afresh. And this practice became known as zich kasheren, you know, making yourself kosher. And the officials in the customs booth knew what was going on, but they were given a golden handshake. A member of the Viennese Jewish community recalled many years later that when he was eight years old, so the time came for his father to undergo this procedure. But the older gentleman was simply too busy. So he sent his eight-year-old boy with uh, five florins clutched in his hands to cross the lines for the whole family. 
and the following conversation took place between this child and the customs official. Age, 54. Occupation, merchant. Number of children, seven. At which point the child hands over the requisite bribe and gets the permit for the family. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yes, that's a sort of a lighter touch to being able to spend some time in Vienna. Yeah. Now, so much for Berlin and Vienna which, despite having very privileged Jews, had numbers that never went above a few hundred in total. Very different is Prague with a population of 11,000 Jews, and therefore they were regulated far more harshly. They were discriminated against with the notorious familiant laws of 1726, which did not allow any expansion of the numbers of Jews living in these lands and would continue until, I believe, 1848. But the events of the wars of 1740 to 1748 pushed Maria Theresa to take even more radical action against them, a total expulsion, which was the last to occur in any European country prior to the Holocaust. Now, to understand why, we need to know something about a series of wars generally referred to as the Wars of Austrian Succession. And there is a simple and a complicated way to describe this eight-year war. Well, we'll have the simple one, please, this time. I might have to give you a bit of both. <laughs> the simplest is to be aware that Maria Theresa was the eldest daughter of the Emperor Charles VI, who died in in 1740 without any sons. He tried before his death to secure recognition by the leading powers of Europe of his daughter as his heir, but several rulers, the kings of France, Prussia and Bavaria, took his death as a heaven-sent opportunity to increase their own territories at the expense of Maria Theresa, which meant war. That's the easy way. The, the harder way is to understand who was on whose side, and we're going to need to keep count of this for what comes later. So, you know, in the red corner, we have uh, Prussia, Bavaria, France, and Spain. And opposing them, we have Holland, England, and the Habsburgs. What has Spain got to do with Central Europe? Right. Well, firstly, the war also involved what would be nowadays Belgium, which was ruled by Spain because of the Holy Roman Empire. And secondly, the war spread as far as the Caribbean. In fact, one skirmish took place over three years and is called the War of Jenkins' Ear. That's the official title of this war. It was fought between the English and the Spanish over smuggling and territory in South America, mainly until 1742. But closer to home, with the annexation of Bohemia by Bavaria and of Silesia by Prussia. So Prague is on the front lines and the area becomes a war zone. As we mentioned, Bavaria and Prussia are on the side of the French and the Spanish. And the Bavarians and the French occupy most of Austria and Bohemia, so they occupy Prague. Now, what choice do the Jews have? 
when their city is occupied by foreign troops. They can't declare loyalty to the previous queen. That would have been suicidal. So they officially, at least, support the new regime. They just want to avoid being looted, expelled, killed. And the truth is that all the citizens of Prague, Jewish or otherwise, cooperated with the new occupiers. Problem is, there is a counterattack from the Habsburgs in 1743. And then a counter-attack to that in 1744 when the Prussians occupy Prague. In November 1744, Maria Theresa is victorious and she retakes the city of Prague and she hears that Prague's Jews have sided with the enemy, with the French in 42, with the Prussians in 44, and not just doing business with them, but supporting them. So anti-Jewish riots break out 20 Jews are killed and Jewish homes and businesses are destroyed. Surely it wasn't just the Jews. Everyone wanted to uh, yes, save themselves. But, you know, as a result of occupation, Prague doesn't look the way it did five, ten years prior. And it needs to rebuild. They need capital and therefore they need a scapegoat. Mm. So the Jews suffer under occupation. And they suffer when the occupation is over. There are no good options. And it didn't take much to convince her of the guilt of the Jews. She'd uh, previously made it clear, and I quote, I know of no greater pest to the state than this nation of Jews on account of their cheating, money lending, reducing people to beggary, and carrying on all kinds of evil transactions which honest persons abhor. And as a result, on December 18th, 1744, Maria Theresa, the Queen of Austria and the Archduchess of Hungary and Bohemia, to give her her official titles, signed an edict ordering the expulsion of all Jews from Prague by the end of January 45, so less than two months later, by June from all of Moravia and Bohemia. And um, she writes, we have been induced by many weighty reasons and considerations to resolve that no Jew shall be permitted to dwell in our kingdom. They were allowed to enter Prague only with special permits and only during the day, and none shall be suffered to stay a single night. So as soon as this decree comes out, the leaders of the Prague Jewish community wrote in great distress to leaders of Jewish communities all over Europe. Who were the leaders of Prague Jewish community then? These are not the Rabbonim. We'll get to where the rabbinate was a little later but simply the... Lay leaders. Th yes, they were the ones generally who regulated the affairs of the city. And they describe how the children, the women, the infirm, the aged, were clearly not in any condition to walk, especially in the cold winter weather. And they write, the condition that we are in, they have stripped many hundreds, quite literally to their shirts, and the imminent danger that many thousands of souls are in. And they pleaded for the sake of the tombs of the righteous who rest in our cemeteries in Prague, 
for the sake of the thirty or forty thousand souls who, because of our sins, are in this great peril all over Bohemia and Moravia. Now, in England, the Svaradi community raised nearly £900 to help relieve distress. The Ashkenazi leaders went even further. Moses Hart, who some listeners may recall from the Cherem episode, and Aaron Franks drew up a petition for presentation to the king. Hart had been involved with government finance for many years, and now, even though he was retired, still had considerable influence, enough anyway to secure an audience with George II, the king, to beg on behalf of Bohemia's Jews. The king was moved by the news, and he directed the Secretary of State, Lord Harrington, to write to the British ambassador in Vienna, Sir Thomas Robinson, which he did that same day. And what he writes, and I quote, is His Majesty would be pleased for you to intercede with the Queen of Hungary. It is the King's pleasure that you should join with Monsieur Bermania, the Netherlands envoy in Vienna, to dissuade the court of Vienna from putting the sentence into execution, hinting to them the prejudice that the world might conceive against the Queen if numbers of innocent people were made to suffer for the fault of some few traitors, and at the same time showing them the great loss that would accrue to Her Majesty's revenues and to the wealth and strength of her Kingdom of Bohemia by depriving it at once of so vast numbers of its inhabitants. So it was quite clear language, in a way quite strong language, and you could call it British foreign policy. Why the British in particular? Why did they get involved? So if you remember, the two powers of Europe that had come to Maria Theresa's help during the war were England, Britain, and the Netherlands, and therefore they held more sway over her, although it has to be said that by 1745 their aims were slightly different because she was mainly concerned in maintaining her territories, and so she was focused on Frederick the Great of Prussia because he still occupied Silesia in 1745. Her two allies, on the other hand, were more directly concerned with France and consequently put pressure on her to cut her losses in the east and direct her attention against France in the west and make peace with Frederick and, you know, lose Silesia. So it's a complicated diplomatic background, but they do have some hold over her. And the ambassadors of both these Western powers begin to put pressure on her to withdraw her decree of expulsion. The British ambassador in various dispatches to Britain demonstrated that he was doing his utmost. He reported several times that he'd seen and met with the Queen's ministers along with the Dutch envoy, but the answers he had received had been far from satisfactory. And in March 1745, Robinson sent a full dispatch to the Secretary of State, to Lord Harrington, and it's labelled secret, much of the original was in cipher, and it showed clearly the pressure put on the Empress and the obstinacy with which she clung to her decree of expulsion. And the ambassador added that some very early insurmountable prejudice 
in the course of her education was clearly extant. Her aversion to the sight of a Jew was too great to be concealed when, at Preshburg, she could not pass from the town to her palace, but through the very street that was thronged by that people. And the very first order she gave upon her arrival at Prague the year before last was that no Jew should presume to enter into the precinct of the palace during her residence there. So, you know, across the, the river where the, the castle is. On the other hand, her aversion to Jews was not carried that far as to interfere with her convenience. One of the greatest artistic achievements of her reign was the construction of the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. The funds for this came from loans granted by the Baron d'Aguilar, a Portuguese Murano who had fled to Vienna, where he had become ennobled and appointed to the Habsburg Council, and he became Maria Theresa's most important financial advisor until he moved to London in the early 1760s. So, you know, for money, there was a way, and we will see that that also played a role eventually here with Prague. So in 1745, little more was to be heard from Robinson, from the ambassador, but a piece of news was carried in the British government's official publication, the London Gazette, on the 20th of June. A letter was printed which reported that Her Majesty, out of her natural clemency and in consideration of the powerful intercession of the King of Great Britain and the States General of the United Provinces, which is Netherlands, permits the Jewish nation to remain until further orders. So that's great, except it was untrue. It was, if anything, premature, but at the time, just simply wrong. The expulsion from Prague and Bohemia continued unabated. Hundreds of people were wandering from town to town, and many died on the roads in the open. The breakthrough only happened in 1748, when 301 families were permitted to return to Bohemia for a period of 10 years in return for a special grant to the Queen of 300,000 florins. And as Maria was careful to point out, this is only because the lands have asked for it with such persuasion. Basically, they needed Jewish money and she was prepared to turn a blind eye to Jewish investment. So there were three years straight from 45 to 48 of Jewish expulsion. Did they not try in England to ask King George maybe to let some Jews in? So there is an interesting theory and that is that if you take the 1740s there were no Anglo-Jewish provincial communities the early 1740s whereas there were a number of them in existence by the 1750s. It is therefore possible that some of the Jews expelled from Prague in 1745 did indeed make their way to England and became the founding fathers of very small communities here in England. Mm. Meanwhile, back in Prague, the Jews came back to a quarter that had been completely looted and ransacked, and they had to rebuild many of the houses and some of the shawls. 
although the 10-year limitation that was originally agreed upon was uh, forgotten by both sides. And amazingly, by 1763, the Jewish community in Prague was once again wealthy enough to rebuild their town hall in the ghetto in the latest architectural style, adding the famous clock with a Hebrew dial next to the Altmoishraw. And within 35 years, when Joseph II succeeded his mother Maria Theresa, these Jews of Prague had prospered in ways that would have seemed impossible in the late 1740s. Wow, so quickly. The last time we mentioned the presence of Rubionis and Eibeschitz in Prague, where was he during all of this? So we need to go a little bit back to answer that question. In 1736, Rubdovid Oppenheim, who was the chief rabbi, passes away. And Rubinus and Eibeschitz was the natural shoo-in to replace him. He was the biggest Tom Chochem in town, um, the greatest scholar. He ran a large and well-known yeshiva, and he was the head of the Bezdin. But he was only appointed as the interim chief rabbi, because he'd been too controversial for some, a bit like Marmite, you either hate him or love him. And this went on for six years. In 1742, as we mentioned earlier, the French occupied Prague alongside the Bavarians. And he saw that he couldn't advance further in his career, so to speak, in the city. So he accepted an offer from the town of Metz in Lorraine, and was given free passage through war-torn Europe by the French, where he would end up in Metz and eventually sign a 12-year contract there. He would, of course, never be allowed back to Prague or anywhere in the Habsburg Empire because he was a traitor, although he did send funds back to the Jews there. And, in fact, there would be no rov of the city of Prague until the Neu de Behuda in 1754-55, yet it was still a place of learning, of Torah, with small yeshivas, a number of them. And we will look at that next week in the last of our series on 18th century Prague. And this will be the carrot. The stick was obviously the expulsion. The carrot we will look at next time. This second part of the century had consequences which were further reaching in many ways until World War II. And once again, Vienna, Berlin and Prague experienced a very similar pattern of history. So next week will be the final in the Prague series. Have you thought about yes. what we're doing next? Yes, we're going to do a three-part series called controversial prayers in history all right exciting so thank you very much again for joining us that was a slightly longer than usual episode but that with the two-week break absolutely they've been yearning for more thanks for joining us and as always any comments or feedback can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk thank you very much for listening thank you Rabbi Hirsch. thank you <laughs>